Father, thank you for your gift of love and salvation. We pray today that the thoughts of our hearts and the meditation of our mind will be pleasing in your sight. And that as we open your word, we would tremble at it. As we know that that is the one to whom you will look. We know that this world today does not often go through books like Lamentations. That they are messages we tend to avoid. But Lord, these are messages we need to hear. We need the sober thoughts of your prophet to help draw our eyes back to the glories of who you are. We praise you and we thank you for this gathering here today, for the time to be around the word, for the time to sing together of the joy that is ours to be washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that Al could join us today and for many others. Lord, we have so many prayer requests that we have on our prayer sheet, as you know here, and we have many people we're lifting up on a regular basis. And we thank you for an answered prayer that we can rightly acknowledge and praise you for here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for you are good and you do good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles now to Lamentations. And as you do that, I would remind you of the, uh, the Lord of the Rings. Uh, some of you are fans. Some of you have never read it and never seen the movies and don't care. Totally fine. So let me give you a real brief synopsis. What happens is you got a group of guys led by a little bitty guy, a hobbit, named Frodo, who's supposed to take the, the ring, Lord of the Rings, He's supposed to take the ring, which is kind of a personification of evil intent and will, and he's supposed to destroy it. And on his way there, he encounters horrible things. But before he gets through the journey, he gets maybe halfway through, and they meet a elf witch, they called her. Her name was Galadriel. She's like as old as the planet. And she has great power and all of this. And she gives out these gifts to the different travelers that are trying to go to Mount Doom to destroy the ring. And she starts handing out gifts. And I was watching one of these movies with my kids, and they have zero memory of Lord of the Rings. And so we're watching through it, and Galadriel, this elf witch lady, she pulls out a vial of light, pure light of the most beloved star from an ancient story within Tolkien's mythology of Elendil. And she gives this special light to Frodo. And she says, may it be a light to you when all other lights go out. And my kid sitting next to me goes, well, that was a lame gift. (laughs) The other guys got got knives, you know. They were serious knives. They looked cool, you know, especially to a 12-year-old. They're like, well, that's pretty dope. You know, I'd love one of those. And then there's a cool rope. That Sam, Frodo's buddy, gets that if you pull on it, it unties and all this stuff. It's magical and it'll stop. Anyway, nerding out a little bit there on you. But he, she gives out these cool gifts. But Frodo gets light. And I said, I tried to explain it to my, my son. And he goes, you mean it's like a flashlight? Like, That's lame. Give me a sword. You know, or something cool like that. A lightsaber, you know, take that from a different mythology and pull it over. But no, gives him 
light. And I was trying to help my, my son understand that it was way more than a flashlight. It was something much greater than that. And you don't understand that until you get further through the story. And then her prophecy, what she says, may it be a light to you when all other lights go out comes true. And it becomes a thing that delivers him from a terrible, wicked, evil, ginormous spider. And it's a personification of all this evil in the world. And all he has to defend himself, really, because his little sword is a joke, is this light, this pure light that can cut through any darkness. I want to pull that illustration over here a little bit as we go to the book of Lamentations. Because we encounter something much darker than anything that Tolkien ever wrote. We, we enter into something much darker because it's real. And this is actually one of the, the darkest points, if not the darkest point in all of Scripture. Not because it's worse than the fall, not because it's worse than the flood, or any of these other, or the book of Revelation as far as the devastation, but because Jeremiah, if you have the courage to read through Lamentations, he gives you the visceral, gruesome details that we don't even want to think about. He takes you into the dark night, not only of the soul of Israel, but into his own. And from that abyss, we must find the light that's there. And as we look at that extreme example, it helps us then import that and recognize that, it, that our faith and our hope is not built on shady foundations. It's not built on things that can't test or can't be tested and pass through the fire. It's a, the exact opposite of such things. This hope that we have is built upon the Almighty. And since it is built on Him, there's nothing that condemn it, stop it, no matter how dark and awful that reality is. If we are like wise people, who take the words that are uttered of Scripture and build our house upon the rock rather than the shifting sand of anything else. That's Jesus' point when you come to Matthew 7 and he speaks of that. Those who hear these words of mine and act on them are like the wise man who builds his house upon a rock. That's what we're digging down to when we go into this kind of abyss. Because we all set priorities and other such things up in our lives, and God removes those props at times. COVID was great for this. A lot of people reassessed their lives about a year ago, and now we're already resetting and going right back to the same goofiness to which we were in, instead of learning those lessons. It's, it's, in, it's very interesting that as you go through lamentations, and the more you learn about it, the more you realize it's still in the mind of the Jews to this day. Jan, uh, July 29th of this year at sunset, they will read, Orthodox Jews will read Lamentations. So they will never forget the cost of ignoring God. Now we who know Christ and, and we know that they have ignored Christ, we, we find this utterly tragic. A zeal for God, but that without knowledge. Without proper knowledge. But this is a memory seared into the minds, the book of Lamentations, 
and the destruction that happened. This is a, a memory seared into their minds annually, year after year. And Lamentations is actually five different poems. Each chapter is a poem. They're formed around an acrostic. They're all set up to a certain poetic meter. And what you need to know about that is that Jeremiah wasn't flippant in his writing of this. This isn't just his journal. This is organized, intentional thought. The same way we take something we really want to remember and set it to music and set it to a rhythm so that we can pull it up to mind and and remember it over and over. That's what he did. He wanted them to recite this. And the audience changes. It goes back and forth. Sometimes he's speaking from the perspective of those who are passing by as he opens up the book. Other times he's putting the words into the mouth of the Jews who he hopes are repentant. At other times he's giving his own personal reflections. And then the last thing I would love to to communicate to you before I get into this is that the first four chapters are in the same poetic meter, but the final chapter is different. The final chapter breaks the mold, and it's actually just one prayer. It's a prayer from Jeremiah that he is hoping will be the prayer of the nation going forward. How should we respond might be the question. For those who've now been exiled, Jeremiah gives them a template, a prayer to follow. So returning to my original illustration here, what I would like to build from is this. We are looking at a light when all other lights go out. So as we do that, first we need to descend into the pit. Chapter 1, verse 1. Lamentations 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her, and they have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins are afflicted. She herself is bitter. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper. For God has caused her grief Because of the multitude of her transgressions, her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. He continues to go through this, and what you're looking at in this initial section is what would a passerby, you see Jerusalem devastated, and what might you say as you're passing by, as you're traveling along with your own family or own caravan of friends, what might you be saying As you walk by, you're saying, how lonely. Look at this desolate place. This used to be a place full of life. A place that was protected by the hand of God. In miraculous ways. 
Even in recent memory, they can remember the days of Hezekiah. Where the mightiest nation in the world, mightiest army of the world, was gathered around its, its walls. And God, in a miraculous way, wiped them out. 185,000 dead in a night. Sent the army of Assyria scrambling back to its homeland, running away from the terror of the Lord. They can remember even that. That would certainly be in their minds as one would be walking by this city that used to be something wonderful. And now the devastation is almost impossible to get back to, to see how bad it is. Even the foundation stones are overturned. Everything is gone. The walls that had to be rebuilt by Nehemiah years later couldn't be built back on their original foundations. It was that drastic. How mad do you have to be to not just kill the owner of the house, but to burn it to the ground? And after it's burned to the ground, to go in with a bulldozer and and rip out the foundation. See, Israel had held the army of Babylon at bay. This is a third deportation that we're looking at here. And they had held them at bay for over two years. The city of Jerusalem, like this pulpit we have here, was under siege as, as the, the army of Babylon was wrapped around it in ever, an ever-tightening noose over the course of two years. Can you imagine? No one goes in. No one comes out. So when the Babylonians break through, do you think they're happy? They are furious. They have been... Do you want to, if you're a soldier, be kept out 500 miles from your home around some city you don't care about? Do you want that to be your life for two and a half years? These guys are furious. By the time they get through, they have zero hesitation with the damage they will do to person, animal, or building. They don't care. They are furious by the time they get through. All her majesty, verse 6, has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her princes have become like deer that have found no pasture. They have fled without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious things that were from the days of old when her people fell into the hand of of the adversary, and no one helped her. The adversary saw her, and they mocked her ruin. Now, if you're there in 586 B.C., your city decimated, your people dying in the streets, children fainting for lack of food, And you call to mind all the wonders of what God has done throughout the centuries. The temple that they considered a sacred relic. If you go back to Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 4, they thought that they could never go down because they have the temple. They say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They keep saying it like it's this lucky charm that's somehow going to save them. Leveled. Gone. What devastation. What heartbreaking devastation. If you're Jeremiah as one of the sole people who cares about the glory of God, 
How do you feel now? Goodness, he's warned about this for decades. And they dismissed him. They threw him in a pit. They threw him in jail. They act like he was, he was a fool. They had false prophets constantly saying the opposite message. He was saying devastation, judgment. And they were saying, no, 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 peace, peace. Things will be great. It will never happen here in Jerusalem. We have the temple. How's that going now? Turn over to chapter 2, verse 20. Going further into the pit, looking deeper into it as he describes, and we're just perusing through this. But by the time you get to chapter 2, verse 20, here we find a horrible scene. See, O Lord, and look. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring? The little ones who were born healthy? Should priests and prophets be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? And there you see it. When everything's falling apart, as the, the walls are being breached, one after another, as they, as they get closer in, where do people run? They're running into the sanctuary. Remember the holy relic, it'll keep them safe. So they're running in there, and they, somehow they think, if I'm here, if I grab a hold, of, a hold of the horns of the altar, so to speak, then I'll be okay. But they've ignored God. They've utterly ignored Him. And so this is the reality that they're now facing. Verse 21, On the ground, in the streets, lie the young and old, my virgins, this is Jerusalem speaking, my virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not sparing. You called as in the day of an appointed feast. My terror is on every side. Everyone comes rushing in. So he's speaking of with the appointed feast. Everybody comes in. Everybody gathers back to Jerusalem for an appointed feast. The, the, nation, the, the city that's maybe 100,000 swells dramatically, and that's what you're, the, the imagery brought to mind for every Jew who's reading this, who's thinking of the devastation. Everyone comes to terror on every side. There's nowhere to go. And there was no one who escaped or survived in the day of the Lord's anger. Those whom I bore and reared, my enemy annihilated them. Where did all this start? How did, how did they get here? Interestingly enough, it all starts back in Deuteronomy. If you'll turn over to Deuteronomy 28, there's actually a whole lot of connections. I'm not going to show all those to you, but if you look it up at some point, you'll find there's a lot of connections between Lamentations and Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28, uh, we'll look at verse 53. If you ignore God, Israel, let me tell you what's going to happen. That's Deuteronomy chapter 28. And Moses doesn't say this with any hint of hesitation, with any hint of like, well, maybe this will happen. 
If you ignore God, you, you put him off. Verse 49, it actually says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down a nation whose language you shall not understand. Remember, this is Moses' era. This is 1500 ballpark here. And now you're looking at the devastation almost a thousand years later that Jeremiah speaks of. And notice the prophecy he gives there. I mean, how on point this, you get down to verse 53. He says, you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. Now, can you imagine being Moses' audience back when he's delivering one of his final sermons at this point to the nation? They probably are shaking their head like, no, 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 never, never. We'll never get that bad. We'll never get to that point. You know, I mean, yeah, we've got, we've, you know, we've compromised on some things. You come to the end of Joshua, and what does he tell the people there? Just a few, you know, well, pages for us, a couple decades later for them. What does he tell them? Put away the gods that were yours from before, back in Mesopotamia. Put those gods away. Put away the gods you have in Egypt. Get that out of your view and serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. See, they had been compromising in small ways. And now they're descendants. Through their example, through their compromise in small ways that they thought didn't matter. On and on it went. What one generation allows for, the next tolerates, the next embraces, and the final one celebrates. Look where we are as a nation today. I'm only 43, and I can't believe the things that I've seen just in my lifetime. I can't imagine for any of you who are in your 90s. Look at the moral decline. Who thought we'd be here where now we don't even want to say that someone is a, there's only two genders. Isn't that crazy? These groups, anyway. My point is we don't think we can get here. I was down in Texas several years ago. This is about a decade ago now. I was talking to a guy and uh, I was explaining, he was saying, he's all, Illinois is crazy, man. You guys got all these rules. You got all these laws and all this stuff. And I said, yeah. And he kept going, especially gun laws and stuff. He didn't like that. And I was like, yeah, well, that's coming for you. And he said, no, this is Texas, never. But look how Texas is changing already. Texas is moving. They're sliding that direction. This guy said, oh, no, we'll never get there. I said, you really think so? He said, give it a decade. Give it two and see where things go. There is a moral decline in us as a people turn away from God. Though our culture would love to deny that, though we would love to... Act like that's not the issue. Man, how obvious is it to us? So it starts, this whole story really starts back in Deuteronomy 28. When Moses warned them in specific detail of what would happen. But Israel thought, no, that God won't do that. So you go back to Lamentations. And you come to chapter 2, you scroll down to verse 17, and Jeremiah says, The Lord has done what he purposed. 
He has accomplished his word. And that is a terrifying reality, isn't it? We tend to think of God accomplishing his word in the positive things that we like, the verses we slap on our wall, the things we enjoy. But God is faithful to his word to a degree that is uncomfortable for many. The Lord has done what he purposed. Jeremiah told him this would happen, and he has accomplished his word. He accomplished his word from Jeremiah and from Moses. He said this was going to happen, and it happens. God is not like a man who says, hey, I'm going to do this someday, and never intends to really do it. He doesn't offer idle threats, and we tend to think he does because he's so patient, unlike a man. He is so forgiving and loving and long-suffering with us that we tend to think he's not going to really act. But behold the kindness and severity of God. We have bought into a weak version of God in church at large. We have bought into an idea that he is a grandfather who won't really deal with sin. But that is in his very definition that he gives to Moses. That he will deal with sin. And we know that vengeance is his. He will repay. But we stay out of those passages because they're hard. Notice further after he says he, the Lord will accomplish his word, he then says, which he commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing. He has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. Now, to add insult to injury, you're Jeremiah, you've told them this will happen. It comes to pass, and you're laying there in the ashes of what used to be your people and your city. And then you see the enemy, the Babylonians, rejoicing, tap dancing on your grave. So we looked at where it started back in Deuteronomy. Now we see how it's ended. Chapter 4, verse 10, in some ways, puts the final nail in the coffin, at least in my mind as I read through this. Chapter 4, verse 10, The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. This is the abyss. So, how is a prophet to be a light in that scenario? When you're in that ruined of a world, how are you supposed to be the light? Especially when your own light has gone out. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction. Because of the rod of his wrath, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness, not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. Now we're looking at the personal reflections of Jeremiah. 
And what he has seen is that the hand of favor that is extended to him, to Israel, has now turned into a fist of an adversary. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me to dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with hewn stone. He's made my past crooked. You're getting the picture of a captured man in a cell that's like a solitary confinement with no light. He's completely blocked in, and he doesn't even seem to think that God cares about his prayers. He is like to me a bear, verse 10, lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. Now, I've been scared sometimes in my life, but I've never walked by like the cave of a bear and had it, you know, out at me and make me wet myself. But I've watched plenty of nature shows, and I haven't seen this with bears, except for a mama bear every now and then getting startled. But I've definitely seen a lot of the, the lion or the lying in wait The lioness is sitting there waiting for something to go by and just pounces. This is how Jeremiah is now picturing God. His God. The God of Israel. The God he has known as Father even. Verse 11, he has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow. He set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter my inward parts. So the arrows are striking and they're striking deep and it hurts. Hurts deep within. I have become a laughing stock to all my people. Their mocking song all the day. What you find here is that even though Jeremiah did his best for decades to warn and and to try to get them to listen, like a parent who sits there with their child who sees them going in, a, in an errant direction and you keep pleading with them, no, son, no. Turn back. And instead, when that child gets to a place where they're even being judged for their sin, instead of turning back and saying, Dad, you were right. I messed up. I've sinned. Instead, what they do is they look back and they still call you an idiot. And if you've known Many a wayward person, you know that that is quite often the case. They might not repent. That's an act of God to to move a heart to see the situation properly. Instead, what they do many times is exactly what happens here to Jeremiah. They, They mock him. Verse 15, he has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished. I got nothing left. I don't want to carry on. 
Why? Why bother? My strength, it's, my vitality, it's gone. I've forgotten happiness. Some believe that what's happening here when he says he's broken my teeth with gravel is either this is from a Babylonian soldier shoving his head into the, in the ground, into the ruins of his city, or it's actually the fact that as they, the survivors are left, the few who are left, are actually put to the grinding mill making bread. So they're, they're taking the job of an ox in a grinding mill and turning that millstone. People are doing this now. The survivors are doing this. And they're grinding up what little remnants of wheat and chaff is left. And now they're feeding that to the survivors and actually has bits of rock in it. So now you're chewing. Your food is even gravel. That's how far gone all this is. You don't even have joy in food anymore. Forgotten happiness. My strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. And I think that is the pivot. Right there. I think for Jeremiah as he writes this, and again he's being thoughtful, so this is not mindless. I believe this is the pivot here. We swing from the absolute darkness of what's going on. Now to, there's a recollection of God here that even my hope is gone. Remember, verse 19, my affliction. It's not that God forgets, but it seems at many times that I'm no longer his consideration. He's moved on to deal with other people. I'm on the bench now. You know, I'm just not a consideration. God's going to work with someone else. And all of us feel like this at times. If we're intentional, if we're thoughtful. We have times in our life when we thought God was using us. We thought we were doing something. And then we go through a season, it feels like there's nothing. I'm just a useless. And God's moved on to work with someone else. So he's saying... Call me back to your attention. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. Hope. Light. In the middle of this wretchedness of what's going on. As soon as I read that, all these other spots I've been reading through lamentations and other times with Israel's judgment comes to my mind, floods into the mind. Because I'm so pampered by comparison. And I'm so quick to complain by comparison. And I'm so thankful to read this. To understand that even in the midst of such awful reality, there is hope that can break through. But notice, it's no hope within himself. This is not positive power thoughts. This is not ignoring the reality of what's going on. Like positive thinking garbage that's out there that tells us, get rid of all the negative influences in your life. They're toxic. You can't have that in your life. Is that what Jeremiah is doing? He's staring right into the, the ugliness, if that's even strong enough of a word. He's staring into all of that, and in the middle of that darkness, he finds the light. Because he looks past humanity to God. 
This I recall to mind, verse 21, therefore I have hope. And in the middle of all that darkness, we have one of the most blessed verses in Scripture. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning, even when Jeremiah wakes up to a city of slaughtered people. Even when he wakes up to a temple dedicated to the glory of God that is rubble and only a memory now. Even in that darkness, he is able to see truth. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What an incredible declaration. What a beautiful declaration. I think that's why so many of us through the years have been drawn to uh, like the, the, the diary of Anne Frank. You read the diary of Anne Frank and then you become aware of the historical situation. And the more you know and the realities of all and what she was living in and the, the world around her and all the ugliness of that. And you read all the hope that that 15-year-old girl had. And you think, man, that is inc- that's remarkable. Unfortunately, her, her hope was a false hope, and it was a hope, quite honestly, that was built in humanity. And so there's a tragedy to that. But there's something so much more powerful here. There's something so much more wonderful for us that even in the midst of horrific things, there can be a perspective, a certainty a hope that dawns. So, the answer for how can a prophet shine light even in that scenario when his own light has gone out is that he looks to the light of God. He looks to the hope that is found in God. Verse 24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. And I can't think of many people in Scripture who can say this with such cred, street cred behind his name, with such authenticity behind what he's saying. As he says this, this is not some... I don't know about you, but I've never been impressed with a happy billionaire. You know, somebody's got everything going their way. They want to tell you about happiness. You're like, will you shut up on your yacht? Yeah, will you quit? You know, listen to some Hollywood celebrity talk about happiness or something like they got everything, their press loves them and everybody seems to love them. It's like, will you quit? You have no idea. Just stop your yapping. But when you hear from somebody who is, who's in it like this, and I can't think of anybody with such a hyperbole of suffering as I've never known anyone like this. And they can speak with such beauty. In the middle of that, that contrast creates such a glow. So, Jeremiah realizes what he needs to do to shine the light. But what he needs to do now is exactly 
what God told Peter, what Jesus Christ told Peter. Peter, I've prayed for you. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, grind you down to a pulp, man. But once you have returned, heal your brothers. Once you have returned, I love that Jesus tells Peter that. Look, you're going to get sifted, buddy. You're going to be humbled like you've never been humbled before. But you're going to return. Because God never gives up on his project. He never gives up on his men. He says, so once you return with a certainty that is going to happen, heal your brothers. What is the role of a prophet? Turn back to Lamentations chapter 2. Part of what went so terribly wrong in Israel is stated here in chapter 2, verse 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions. They told you the garbage you wanted to hear. They just gave you the message you would pay them to tell you. We wonder why we have the politicians we do in this country. That was made by order. By people who want things. These prophets were no different. They worked. They, did their, they plied their trade because that's what people wanted. The messages they wanted to hear, they just fed them. Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions and have not exposed your iniquity. A prophet was almost never popular. And if he was, it was for a moment. And then they wanted to kill him later. Why? Because a prophet's job, probably more than anything, was to come in and say, thus says the Lord. And when they come in and say that, it's rarely happy news. Usually he's coming in and he's exposing sin. And none of us like that. None of us want somebody to come in your living room and actually know all your details and start saying, this is what you do wrong. This is how you sin. This is what God says. That's a hard message. And so the role of the prophet, probably more than anything, was to expose iniquity in the people of God. For to what end? To what end did the prophet do that? The true prophet of God do that? So as to restore you from captivity. But they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. The, the role of a prophet exposed sin for the purpose of setting you back in the place you belong with him. The prophet is perceived as a bad guy, as a storm crow, as an evil. He's the messenger. You're mad at God. You're not really mad, if you're a Jew at this time, at Jeremiah. You're mad at God. But the prophet was often killed because he conveyed the message of God. And he was not concerned with how people might respond to it. That was God's prerogative. That was God's department. Jeremiah longed. He's the weeping prophet. He longed for the people to repent. That was the spirit in which he would expose their sin. But it certainly was not the spirit in which it was received. So Jeremiah, in returning to the light, in turn, returning to hope in God, he then, in his role, pivots 
to helping his brothers return. How do I know that? That's what Lamentations is. As I said, that's what, at different times, he puts words in their mouths hoping that they will say what he is saying, that they will echo his thoughts. If you turn to chapter 1, verse 18, you'll find the pivotal verse of the book, of the scroll of Lamentations. Chapter 1, verse 18, the Lord is righteous. Now imagine saying that in the ashes of your city. The Lord is righteous. For I, this is Jerusalem speaking, for I have rebelled against his command. I merited this. I earned this. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I have called to my lovers, but they deceived me. Israel, Judah, called out to everyone they made a treaty with and said, we're in trouble, help us out. Egypt, come on. We made a treaty, where are you at? They didn't care. It was not politically expedient for them. So they're out. Those in whom they trusted bailed on them. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they sought food to restore their strength themselves. See, O Lord, for I am in distress. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is overturned within me. For I have been very rebellious in the street. The sword slays. In the house, it is like death. Jeremiah wants the people to recognize the reason this happened is because of arson. This was an entirely avoidable reality. If they would but listen, if they would but hear the words and build their life upon the rock. But they refuse. So you go from verse 118 to chapter 2, verse 14. And you recognize when he speaks here of their restoration from captivity, it starts with them acknowledging their sin, acknowledging their responsibility. And so can begin restoration. That's what 2.14 is about. That's why I drew your attention back to it. Now, chapter 5. Let me look at that for just a second. As I said, chapter 5 kind of breaks the mold of the poetic meter that is used in the first four chapters. And now he gives us a prayer of repentance. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us, and look and see our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a father. Our mothers are like widows. We have to pay for our drinking water. Our, our wood comes to us at a price. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. And it is we who have borne their iniquities. The rest of this chapter is again leading Israel in a prayer of response to all that is going on. This whole letter, book, is a grave reminder of this avoidable reality of God's judgment. 
So then, where does that leave me as I walk away from this message? Depressed. Where does that take me from here? I hope that what it does is it makes you look into the abyss of human darkness, the human soul, and to realize that all is darkness unless God calls light into existence. All is darkness without him. Remove God and what do you have? Nothing. Utter darkness. Look into your own heart also, a secondary God we might have. Look into your own heart and find, as Jeremiah did, there is no immovable help, hope or help within yourself. You can have all the positive power thoughts you want, but if this kind of thing comes for you, what are you going to focus on? Not only that, but you look beyond this life to the next, and where is your hope? So you look to the world and you find darkness without God's light. You look into your own heart and you find there is no ultimate hope unless God himself kindles the flame in the soul and keeps it alight. And thirdly, I would say that we ought to know for certain that there is no deliverance from the judgment of God except through Jesus Christ. There's no deliverance. If God sets it in motion, he says it's coming, it's going to happen. We have the book of Revelation to tell us of the impending reality that the world says is crazy. That can't happen. It is going to happen. Without a doubt, it's going to happen. That is the truth. And this world would love to rage against such thing, and we know in their stupidity they will rally together when the, the exalted Christ comes down and think they can take him out. And he will speak and wipe them out. Praise. Praise his name. Know for certain that there is no deliverance from the judgment of God except through Christ. So where does that leave me? That leaves me. I can't leave you walking away from Jeremiah any different than when or reading Lamentations than you would from reading the book. I can't preach you a sermon that makes you feel happy if that's not what Lamentations does. I feel that's unkind to the text. Where does that leave me, though? It leaves me with a sober-minded hope. And an ever-present hope. Because it rests upon the Almighty and no other. As the song said just a moment ago, it's perfect that Christina actually picked the song there. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge that all other ground truly is sinking sand. You are the solid rock. May our lives be built upon that truth. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for your word. And may we have ears to hear. And may we act upon these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.